0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Believe in USC Basketball. I am your host, Chris Penrose. With me is Adam Grossbard, beat writer uh, for USC, uh, for the OC Register. Uh, He's going to join me today. We're going to talk a little SC hoops. Adam, how you
1: doing? I'm good, Chris. How about
0: you? I'm awesome, thanks. So early on in this USC season, a very young team. You know, we've heard a lot about... Uh, these freshmen that are coming in, they're going to be very exciting. A uh, lot of up and down. We have a couple of McDonald's All-Americans. Um, we got, of course, everyone knows uh, one's coming in next season. Um, and then we got a little glimpse of how fun this team could be in that exhibition game against Villanova, who's pre-ranked number 10. So far in this very young season, the Trojans are eight and two. Uh, What are your initial thoughts on this team so far?
1: It's been a lot of inconsistency. I'd say um, even within wins, I don't think we've really yet to see them put together a full 40 minute dominating effort. You know, even against those like early teams and, you know, that's to be expected to a certain extent, given how many new guys they have, eight new guys this year. Um, Most of whom are playing a pretty big role. But they just really haven't been able to put together a full 40 minutes. And sometimes that has uh, definitely come back to hurt them.
0: Yeah, I think there have been
1: like six
0: different starting lineups that Enfield's put out on the floor so far. Um, you know, the, the one consistency we've seen in this young season has been Oyeka Okafor. I mean, he's really, or excuse me, Oyeka Okongwu. He's really come yeah. out and has been the guy, the dominant kind of cornerstone for this team so far. Is that what you kind of expected?
1: I mean, there was no doubt that he was going to be the most talented guy on the floor. I, I got to cover uh, one of his playoff games this last year when he was at Chino, and he is—he uh, was just—he was just dominant. Like, and you knew that was who he was coming in. I was a little surprised he wasn't getting more preseason draft type for mostly if he's even in the first round he's in the late first round i would imagine that'll change uh just because he's such a good two-way player and but um you know he still has his freshman moments We saw it at the end of the game against tcu when he missed a few big free throws uh which is really uncharacteristic of him going back to his uh chino hills days he did a pretty good job of hitting some clutch shots and so, uh, you know, he's still, he's still figuring some things out, but yeah, I, I don't think it's a surprise that he's the real centerpiece of this team.
0: Yeah. And we're, we're going to get back to talking about the end of that TCU game, which almost gave me a heart attack, but you look at Onyeka <laughs> and he's at, he's averaging 17 points, uh, shooting 61% from the field, um, you know, eight, o- almost nine rebounds a game. And what's amazing is he's got 33 blocks, like his knack, for being able to 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 find the basketball and know when either shots going up or when it's coming off the rim is something that has really impressed me so far. And then the the next yeah. leading scorer is Nick Rakosevich. And it's kind of funny when you when you look at the top two leading scorers for SC, they're both big men. And there's been so much talk about all these guards that are coming in with two big time transfers with Daniel Utomi coming from Akron. Uh, Quentin Adlesh coming from Columbia, two big time shooters, you know, Ethan Anderson, uh, who was originally committed to UNLV uh, when Marvin Menzies got fired. He came to SC, you know, Max Audubon Paulo, who is a big name, you know, top 100 guy coming out of Orange County. Are you kind of surprised to see the big men being so dominant and the guards, although playing pretty well, not being the centerpiece of this team?
1: Well, I I don't, I think that's just how this team was constructed with their best players being bigs, Uh, whether it's Okongwu, whether it's Mikosevic, whether it's Isaiah Mobley, and that's not going to change next year with Evan Mobley on the way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how they're choosing to build their rosters. And really, when you look at the guards that they added, they added some really athletic wings. Um, and they added some point guards, but when they were looking to add guys who they were expecting to contribute right right away, they went and got two graduate transfers who were known as just lights-out shooters. Um, that's Quentin Adlish, and that's who told me. Uh So they always planned to build around the bigs, and they wanted to have guys on the floor who could space around them. So no, I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised, although it's a very you know old-school way of doing
0: it. Yeah, the old uh, inside-out game. But one of the issues have yeah. been uh, with this, with that system, is the shooting has not been that good for USC. Right? They're shooting about thirty-four percent from the three-point line, um, and you had these guys like Jonah Matthews, who has struggled from from the three. He's twenty-one of fifty-eight on the season at thirty-six percent. Daniel Tomy had that big game against Villanova where he hit four threes and looked like he was just unstoppable. He's shooting 24% from three. Quentin Adelish came on uh, pretty strong against Harvard. Um, But I mean, what do you attribute that to? I mean, these guys are, they came in heralded as the, you know, great perimeter shooting team. And that just hasn't, it just hasn't showed up yet.
1: Yeah. I, I, it's, It's one of those things where sometimes with shots, you just kind of have to throw your hands up. Uh, They've been trying to say, you know, eventually the shots are going to fall, and maybe you started to see that with Adlish against Harvard. Um, But it's it's pretty difficult to explain. I would say, if anything, it's just them still trying to learn the offense. That's not necessarily an excuse for Jonah Matthews, but he's still learning to play with all the other guys around him. And I just don't think that they've really – figured out spacing. I don't think they've done a very good job of moving off the ball to create open shots for themselves. And yeah, I I think they're still learning how to play around those big guys.
0: Yeah. And uh, you know, probably consistency with a rotation would probably help some of these guys too. You know, we talked about the six different starting lineups or so that Enfield's had uh, so far this season. I mean, of what you've seen, What do you think would be your best starting five uh, so far? If you were to say, you know, if you stepped in as Andy Enfield and you were the head coach at USC and you had to choose one starting lineup for the rest of the year, what would you do?
1: I would go Ethan Anderson at point guard. He's been their most consistent playmaker. I'd put Jonah Matthews at the shooting guard, and then I'd go big the rest of the way. I'd go Isaiah Mobley and I would go with Rikosevic and Otongwu. Um, I just think those are their five best players, and they uh, Anderson does a really, really good job of setting other guys up. Jonah gives you a little bit of shooting, and Isaiah is a pretty dynamic guy where you could do some things with him. Um, that would be kind of interesting, and I, I think he's gotten, they've gotten a little too concerned about making sure they match up personnel-wise. I, I think that you know, something that they could do better is just have, you know, just say screw it. If you're going to start three little guards, one of them is going to have to try to score around Isaiah Mobley because mm-hmm. he's long and he's athletic and he can keep up.
0: Yeah. And when, uh, just, I,
1: can't, I just challenge Mobley to do that.
0: Yeah. I can't remember which game it was, but the announcers were talking a little bit about Isaiah Mobley and they said that uh, uh, his dad, Coach Mobley, uh, actually trained him as a point guard most of his life and then he got to a certain point in high school where he just grew like six inches and coach said "Uh (laughs) uh-oh we we better shift this because you can see Isaiah Mobley when he gets a rebound on the defensive end he has the ability to push it up and it's not like Prokosevich is pushing it which he does every now and then my heart like sinks to my stomach you actually have a bit of a confidence when Isaiah Mobley brings the ball up and that's probably some of those you know, old school uh, point guard drills that his dad was putting through, uh, putting him through as a kid. Um, it's always
1: those guards who have a late uh, growth spurt who are like the most dangerous players out there on the wing. It, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I
0: agree with your starting lineup. I love Ethan Anderson. I'm a big Ethan Anderson fan. I actually think some of his best basketball has come against the toughest teams that they've played. You know, like the road on the road mm-hmm. against Nevada. I thought he was fantastic at TCU. I thought he was very, very good. Nobody really played well against Marquette in that tournament, but I thought he actually was one of the better performers during that game. Uh, it does make me a little
1: nervous. He was the one you could see the effort on defense in that game. Everyone else had just kind of waved the flag at Marcus Howard.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Elijah Weaver makes me a little nervous when he doesn't start. Um, and the only reason why I say that is, you know and I had this same kind of concern last year with Derek Thornton that he will get into his own head. you know Elijah Weaver was a guy that sure. he came in as a freshman and he knew he was going to be the backup point guard, but he was pushing Derek Thornton and, and there were a couple of games where Thornton didn't start last year and and he was just out of his he was out of his comfort zone and, and not in the game to begin with. Do you think? Am I overreacting to to Elijah Weaver? Do you think there's some reality into that, or do you think he would just get over
1: it? No, I hadn't really thought too much about that. I, I don't know exactly. I haven't really spent a lot of time speaking with Elijah, so I can't really speak to uh, for him in that regard. Um, I think that there are merits to having him if you want to have a little bit more shooting and have just a little bit more. I guess I'd like uh, a little bit faster in the backcourt. Um, without Mobley out there, but I, I, I still think I would go with the length and with Ethan and Jonah.
0: Yeah, and of the so they've gone about ten guys deep so far this year. You know, Charles O'Bannon Jr. Unfortunately, the guys hurt again, just breaks my heart because he's such a good kid and he just the poor guy just cannot stay healthy. But you look at this roster; they go ten deep, and you got to think that once the Pac-12 season starts, Enfield's going to cut that to about eight. Is that what you kind of see? And, and, and if you see that, what are, who are the two guys that kind of get left out, do you think?
1: Whew, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I could see that. That typically is what happens when you start getting to conference play and the wins really start to matter. Um, or more than, you know, the big games and non-conference anyways. Um, i would imagine that it would probably be a freshman or two uh that's typically what happens is that they start to lose some playing time later in the um season maybe max maybe kyle um i i still think though that andy really likes those two and doesn't want to have them lose playing time so it would be a tough decision if they had to cut it down um I think the biggest thing though would just be to stick to a rotation, no matter how the number of guys. Just trying to figure out exactly how all of these guys fit together, and I think it's still a work in progress.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, I think one of the biggest issues that Enfield has is you only have one ball in on the court because so many guys can yeah. score. There's so many, so many different ways that team could be dangerous. But you know, you you only have five guys on the court at once and one ball on the floor, and uh and. You know, the coaching staff is going to have to figure that out. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit. Yeah, I just say
1: that they've started. No, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the tournament in Orlando that SC just, uh, hmm. that, that they just finished. Um, and then we'll talk about the TCU game. But, you know, I thought coming off of that Temple game at the Galen Center, I thought that, you know, we really saw, you know, for lack of better words, a toughness issue. Uh, with that SC team. Um, and, and I think it kind of reared its ugly head in the first two games. Um, you know, I thought, I thought Fairfield uh, was completely uh, overmatched by SC and they continued to hang in the game for a long period of time. Uh, Marquette, I feel like, you know, Howard started to get it going and our defense just kind of wilted. Um, I thought we came back a little bit against Harvard. Harvard's a good team. Uh, I thought offensively we, we played pretty well, and uh, we got a little bit tougher on defense. But, I mean, are, are you kind of seeing that issue too with defensive toughness? Is that, is that something that, that's happening, or, or am I imagining it?
1: Oh, I, I think that they have struggled against more physical teams. Um, you definitely saw that against Temple, where they struggled to take a hit. Um, down in the post and just would kind of let the bigger temple players, not even like bigger in terms of size, but just more physical, stronger down there, uh, really, you know, take it to them at the rim. And I, I, I thought Fairfield, yeah, it wasn't there. It, it's, you know, it comes back to just not playing a full 40 minute game more than anything. Um, just those inconsistencies we were talking about. Uh, Marquette was just it just felt like they gave up mm-hmm. um, they just really just stopped playing defense and um, Andy explained it as he felt like it was the offense that led to the poor defense because they were taking very quick poor, uh, poorly thought out shots and uh, then just weren't getting back on in transition and Marquette really punished them for it. And my goodness, I, not that often you see a 50-burger on you in a college basketball game, but there it was from Marcus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the, the, the one thing that they have done is after both losses, they have bounced back and won their next game. They haven't let anything spiral. Um, they haven't let a bad performance like get in their head before the next game. And so I think that's been encouraging because to bounce back and beat Harvard after two days of thinking about that Marquette loss, just in Orlando, nothing to do but think about, man, that was embarrassing. And to go out and beat Harvard, you know, the Ivy Leagues, they have some really, they, the top Ivy League teams can hang with almost anyone in the country, um, you know, in, a, in a, the right setting. So to go out and beat Harvard the way they did, I thought that was pretty encouraging. And to go get a road win at TCU was even more so. Yeah. Even though they uh, almost let that one slip.
0: I know. And it's, uh, you know, I think they were up by like 16, 17 at one point um, in that second half. And as soon as you think that the game's in control, you know, that TCU team, who's a good team, you know, let's give – Jamie Dixon and his team credit they're they're a pretty solid team, um, but they just they shouldn't have they shouldn't have been in uh, in the game at the end there. And you know I think free throws, I, what was it, two front ends of one on ones that SC yes. couldn't convert, and then
1: turnovers, mm-hmm. one by Jonah, one by turnovers and then okongwu missed two free throws back to back so that was four free throws that really felt more like six because it was the two front ends too and uh conversely i thought even there were the turnovers and that was bad but the amount of times that usc just made silly fouls against tcu and they made i think six out of seven from the line so the free throws on both ends of the court were really bad for usc
0: Yeah, and the the free throws have been kind of an issue all year long, right? The team right now shooting sixty six percent for the free throw line, and I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past. It seems like they make their free throws when it doesn't really matter, and they're up by eighteen against a Florida A and M or a South Dakota State, and then when it gets to be crunch time a little bit, uh, they're not falling, and that could be. A little bit of immaturity on some of the young guys' parts. But you would expect someone like Jonah Matthews, who's a senior, to step up and sink those two free throws to, to continue to to put the game out of out of place.
1: Yeah, that was not a great look for Jonah. Um, he did a lot of other good things to win. Obviously, 20 points in that game. like He had a very good game, but that was just a, a bad crunch time moment for him. But otherwise, good performance. I, I talked to Andy actually about this today. I asked him about the free throws because he was out there after practice working with guys on their free throw shot. And one of the things that he pointed to is like, you're talking about how they make a lot of free throws when the game's out of proportion. Well, that's because some of their best free throw shooters are on the floor at those moments because they a lot of their best free throw shooters are not in their primary lineup. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the primary lineup you have Rakosevich who is not very he's just a career not a great free throw shooter Um, he's just starting to figure out his three pointer but even that I think makes Andy squirm every time he shoots it yeah me too Um, and and Onyeka who's just you know is a big guy so when you have a lot of big guys out there you're not necessarily going to have your best free throw shooters on the court Yeah, Uh, which I thought was an interesting point but
0: yeah, just looking at these stats here, you know, Neka shooting 71% from the free throw line. Rukosovich, 58. Jonah Matthews, 71. Isaiah Mobley, 58. Elijah Weaver, who's a guard, 58. Like, that's just, you can't yeah. have that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been pretty bad. I think they, I looked it up today, they missed 78 free throws in their first 10 games, mm. which is kind of stunning. Um and they are like two fifty or something in the 250-260 range nationally in terms of uh lowest free throw percentage. Hmm. So they are it's been a serious issue, they're dead last of the conference. Um hmm. they're definitely working on it though. I saw them in practice today, Andy Andy himself working one on one with a couple of guys on their free throws.
0: Well that's encouraging to hear. That's what that's, that would be nice. That would be nice. Well, yeah. uh, last thing before before we uh, before we close up shop here. So, three more games until the Pac-12 season start. Uh, SC plays Long Beach State on Sunday. Um, they're like mm-hmm. three and six or three and seven right now. Uh, that should be a win. Uh, the big one, which I'm really excited for, is LSU. This is a marquee game for USC that win. The tournament selection committee, when they're looking back, this is a big time uh, opportunity for USC to get a marquee win against a team that's going to be going to be, you know, one of the top probably three or four in the SEC. What do you see um, happening in that game on December 21st at Staples Center?
1: Cool, oh, man. With all this USC coaching search and just going through these last couple of games, I have not had the ability to look more than two days down the line. So I have not looked, paid too close of attention to LSU. I do agree, though, that is a really big game for USC's resume. They have to go in there thinking we need to win this game. And I know every team goes into every game feeling like you got to win, but... There should be a definite sense of urgency in how they play in that game. They can't have another Marquette performance. Um, you know, they've ha- got a couple of good wins. Road win at Nevada is good, and a road win at TCU is good. And Harvard, you know, it's not elite, but it's still respectable. Like, mm-hmm. people will notice that. But LSU is really their chance to get a really a non-conference win because they missed out on that with Temple. They definitely missed out on that with Marquette which in turn made it so that they didn't get the chance to play Maryland in that mm-hmm. tournament. So they really need uh, a good performance against LSU but they also can't overlook Long Beach State because Long Beach State is the um, you know, cross-county team who doesn't get the attention like USC and uh, they almost stole one from UCLA earlier this season. So they're going to come in very, very motivated for this game, and uh, you know USC can't overlook how important it is to their opponent who's coming in.
0: Yeah, totally agree. As as Coach Floyd used to say uh, back when I played, you know when you play against the Long Beach State or the Cal State Northridges or the Cal State Fullerton's uh, or UC Santa Barbara, was like those are the guys that grew up wanting to go to USC and UCLA. So they have something to prove when they come into your come into your house. They want to, they want to beat you and they want to smack you around. So I agree. SC can't, can't look past that. Uh, well, Adam, thank you so much for the time. love uh, loved having you on the show. Love to have you back again. Um, I appreciate it. And, uh, for everyone listening, uh, thank you and fight on.